I'm calling this talk Impermanence and Uncertainty, which is such a reassuring topic. <laughs> a Nietzsche and uncertainty. And I don't know where, where somewhere this week I was reminded of the story in the, the story of Patakara, who was one of the early nuns. And her story is in the commentaries on the suttas. And the same story is found in the canon, but the, the person's name is Kisagotami. And Kisagotami is also in another story that you might be familiar with about a woman whose child dies and she's just overcome with grief and she can't accept the child's death and she runs everywhere asking for some, them people to help her revive her, her child until she comes across the Buddha. And he says, sure, I'll help you, but go to a house and go to the village and bring me a mustard seed from the house of a, a family that has never experienced death. And then, of course, she went to every house and they said, we give you a mustard seed, but we can't help you. And so then she had that awakening. So that is um, uh, one of the stories. But this other story, I don't hear a lot, and probably because it can be challenging. Um, so Patakara was a woman who... Um, I believe she was married, and she had uh, she was pregnant with her second child, and she wanted to return to her parents' house. So she and her partner and the uh, first child set off, and somewhere along the way there was a terrible storm, and they got caught in this storm. And she asked her partner to build a shelter, so he went off to find some something to build a shelter with, and he was bitten by a venomous snake and was killed died and she didn't know what happened to him because he was somewhere else and it happened that during the night she ended up giving birth to her second child and so um and then in the morning she found um the corpse of her partner and so she decided to continue on with her children to her parents house and she came to this river that was just really rushing the the current was really really strong because of the storms and so she realized she couldn't carry both of her children, so she left the older one on the shore and carried the newborn across to the other side and then left the newborn and then was heading back to get the first one. And as she was fording back, fording the river back to the first child, a hawk scooped down and came down and scooped up the baby and flew off with the, the newborn. And she was in the middle of the river when this happened, and she started screaming and waving her arms, at which point... The first child saw this and thought she was calling to him and started wading into the river and just was swept away by the current, which was so strong. So there she was. She had nothing left. She lost her partner and her two children in like 12 hours. And so she got, found, got back to the, the far shore again and decided to keep going to her parents' house. She finally got to their village and she discovered that they had been, her parents and her brother had been struck by lightning the night before and killed, and they were on the funeral pyre at that moment. It was at that point she lost her mind. Um, she lost her mind to grief, totally just kind of became crazed and wandered around the village and just was really... To, couldn't take care of herself anymore. She was half naked, and the, 
people people didn't react kindly to this. They would throw things and yell at her, and and she became she. They finally ostracized her from the village. I mean, it's a really terrible, terrible tragedy that she experienced, and she eventually found her way to the Buddha. Um, and she knelt before him, and he spoke Dharma to her. He talked about, you know, the reality of um, of the nature of experience, and and what what hap- you know, what the human condition is. And as happens so often in the suttas, when the Buddha spoke, people immediately understood, and she immediately understood the idea of impermanence and. And came back into you know loss you know, gained some of her her uh, sanity back. She was no longer crazed, and she eventually took the robe. She was one of the earliest nuns, and um, it comes down as one of the ones who was very very um, helpful in establishing the the rules of of uh, practice for the the nuns, the uh, vinya for the, the the monastic women. And the Buddha said to her. Your family all gone, miserable. You've suffered pain without measure. Your tears have flowed for many thousands of lives, meaning that you are just part of this stream of grief and sadness and loss. That is the human condition. And it's basically a story of letting go and the recognition that everything is impermanent. Everything's impermanent. Even those things that we hold most dear, as it talks about in the five remembrances, you know, we are the nature to grow old, get sick, and die, and everything we love will be taken from us. We'll be separated from everything we care about. And impermanence is one of the three characteristics, the three marks of existence, the anicca, impermanence, that, that everything passes, everything changes. Anatta, meaning there's no fixed self. We are conditioned beings. We are conditioned by our, our DNA. We're conditioned by our parents and their parents and on and on and on. We're conditioned by society. We're conditioned by the experiences. We are, we are who we are because of the mix we're in. And dukkha, the, uh, the recognition that there is suffering, that there is discomfort, there is discontent, dissatisfaction in this world. So to have that awareness, that foundation, is incredibly powerful. And the Buddha, one of his most important teachings, in fact, one of his final teachings, or one of the things he said on his deathbed, is that all conditioned things are impermanent. And we're conditioned. We're the product of causes and conditions. And he says, they arise and they cease. That is their nature. That is their nature. And so when we, when we take the time to reflect on this in a setting like this, or when we read a sutta or hear a story or, or think about it, of course it makes so much sense when we drill down at this level. But that's not usually how we operate in the world. That's not how we experience the world. We think or we have the sense that things are going to last. Even if intellectually understand that everything changes, everything ends, you know, um, we, we believe that they will last. You know, I was talking about steady as a mountain, that a mountain can withstand all these things, but it is eventually going to wear down it's eventually going to wear down. It may take, or it's going to take longer than our lifetime, 
is going to take multiple lifetimes, but they will wear down. I love geology, and I love looking. If you, if you ever are out in some place and you can see the, the, the amazing um, geologic things that happen, if you, you, know, you look at these, these rocks that are sideways, what, what geologic stuff had to happen to press these, these big stone formations up into the air and cause... Um, such rumblings. I, I live in California, and we have a lot of earthquakes out here, and I've seen big faults. It's just extraordinary. So everything, it seems steady, it seems, but everything's going to shift and change. Um, it just may not be in our worldview, but to have that deep understanding of impermanence is so um, important, you know? Even though we live in a world of planned obsolescence, I mean, that's how, you know, the, the capitalism survives on this, oh, here's something, it's going to break, so you're going to have to ba get another one, or it's going to go out of style, so you're going to have to get a new style. But um, it's important to see things as they are, and uh, Nayapanika Tara, who did a lot of uh, translating of the suttas, said, um, he said, to see things as they really are means seeing them constantly in the light of the three characteristics. Ignorance of these three or self-deception about them is by itself a potent cause for suffering. By knitting, as it were, the net of false hopes, of unrealistic and harmful desires, of false ideologies, false values and aims of life in which man is caught, Ignoring or distorting these three basic facts can only lead to frustration, disappointment, and despair. Yeah. We want certainty, even if it's the root of our suffering. It's this paradox. We want it to be a certain way, even though it can't be. And of course, there's the certainty that we have in this world. We need to, I mean, we need to have this understanding that things are going to hope we plan that things are going to be stable that I can leave my house and come home and it'll still be here that I'll go to the store and it'll be where it is or such and such will happen I'll go to the airport and the plane will take off we have that idea but there has to be this broader understanding that things will shift and change you know the story of Patakara and Kisagatami are these heart-wrenching stories of grief and loss you know they're the stories of impermanence writ large and we're seeing that today i mean this last week with the horrific fires on maui and this n tremendous destruction overnight overnight and the great loss of life and 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 stuff and livelihoods and homes and it's extraordinary it's so um, yeah, gut-wrenching, as I said, and, you know, and it's the result of climate change, you know, around the world, and there's a, there was a fire here in, um, the California Nevada desert, in the, in the desert, on, in the Joshua trees, and they were saying whole ecosystems have been destroyed, and I know up in Canada, y'all had fires that have been raging for a very long time. It's this impermanence and the inability of some folks to recognize the shifting and the changing. Um, they're so, they're so uh, 
there's so much grief associated with it, you know, and we have to recognize that, and we have to be be able to be present with the grief, and and we see the great imbalance in the world, in society, the greed and the hatred and the ignorance that over the centuries has caused so much suffering and continues to cause so much suffering. We see it every day. And even more so because we've got all these devices that spew it at us on a 24-7 basis if you choose to ingest, which I hope you don't, because that's not healthy for anyone. Um, you know, and it's not a matter of letting go and recognizing impermanence is not a matter of saying, oh, well, climate change, and throwing your hands in the air. But it's to understand the nature of experience and the nature of existence. And can we work to change things that cause harm, yet stay out of the attachment to outcomes? That is also a very tricky thing because we, we have this concept of how things should be and if I do this, then it should end this way. When... That's, that's also unrealistic because we have no control. We want certainty, as I said, but it's, it's certainty is impossible. Jack Cornfield talks about Ajahn Chah, who's this um, Thai forest uh, master who lived in the last century, very wise, wise, down-to-earth teacher. And he would respond to many, many, many questions uh, with, it's uncertain, isn't it? Like, what's going to happen when I die? Or what is this? And he's like, it's uncertain. And it sounds really glib. It sounds like a throwaway line. Woo! You know, who knows? But really to understand the essence of it. There's a freedom and a liberation to understand the essence of it if we can let go of our attachment to that idea of it should be a particular way. And... You know, as I was reflecting on this and, and looking some stuff up of, about this, this idea of impermanence and uncertainty, I came across the idea of happiness because, um, and, I, and I found this was interesting, and I didn't, I probably knew it at some level, but I didn't, hadn't thought about it in a while, is that this idea of happiness we have that's so prevalent in, in, in the West, in the United States, in Canada, and I think also in um, a lot of uh, Western Europe is that um, it's a it's a right, you know the person we have it in the United States the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know it's our right as a human being, um, but that's a fairly recent phenomenon that's that came out of the of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason in the 17th and 18th centuries, and if you look at happiness over the centuries, it had very different ideas and different philosophers in different ages. Happiness was seen differently, and you know, and I was thinking about it today. If I looked at other um, non-Western, non-Enlightenment in, um, influenced. Um, cultures and countries, they might also have a very different view of happiness, although this, this globalism and this Western creep is starting to seep into these other places. Um, so we have this idea of happiness as um, something we have to get to. And, and if we get, do it right, we'll be happy. 
Well, there's just the ending of fairy tales, and they lived happily ever after. I'm just waving my hands in the air because it's like, we know how that works. Um, we've all, I, I like to say this, we have all gotten something we really, 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 really wanted. Whatever it was, whether it was a box of chocolates or a book or a brand new car or a relationship or a job, we've all gotten something we wanted. But have any of us lived happily ever after? It didn't do it. It didn't do it. You know? And, some, and we're taught in this culture, if we don't get happy, if we don't achieve that, then we're probably doing something wrong. And I found this blog called, um, what's it called? It's called Out of the White Nest. And it has this thing, I just want to read a bit of it. It talks about perfection as the ultimate pursuit. And so many of us, whether consciously or unconsciously, kind of move in this direction of, perfection and getting it right because then we'll be happy then we'll have gotten where we're supposed to be and this perfection perfection is the ultimate pursuit it keeps us focused on the future and unconscious in the present that's what meditation is all about letting go of the future and coming back to the present so this perfection as the ultimate pursuit keeps us focused on the future and unconscious in the present Missing who we actually are and what is actually happening in the desire for what we fear of missing out on. And everything in which we could seek perfection, betterment, etc. can be turned into a marketable, profitable commodity. That's familiar. Yes, of course, the pursuit of perfect face, perfect skin, perfect body leads us to pay for diet books and plans and supplements and creams and facials and plastic surgery and gym memberships and trainers and new versions that pop up all the time. But there's also the pursuit of the perfect partner commodified on dating apps. Um, the same for houses. Even if we can't and probably never will afford the homes we see remodeled and sold on endless home finding and home improvement shows, that fantasy keeps us subscribing to that idea. And I heard something on, I listened to um, a podcast, the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a, a, a fun quiz show on NPR. And they said, they, one of the questions was, um, I don't remember the question, but the, ultimately the answer was, people get, to re get depressed watching these home improvement shows because it's so out of their reach. But this is, these things are held up as, this is what will bring you happiness, yet people, it's just an impossible goal. So it's this, almost this, this pursuit of happiness just increases our suffering because we're caught in that loop of thinking. And then, um, then he says, or the person who wrote this, I have no idea who it is, the, other ironic capitalist capitalization is enlightenment. From trendy yoga studios to mega-endorsing spiritual advisors to multi-thousand-dollar retreats and yogis by the hour, plus the made-in-China man-made Buddhas, the boutique yoga wear and the bowls and the beads and the bells and enlightenment-in-a-bottle bullshit. Yes, spiritual happiness. You know, here, buy my book. Listen to my podcast and you will get happy. It's so ironic that chasing Buddhas is promised to bring happiness when if you know. There's a, there's a happiness, but it's not the happiness of getting. It's the, it's the tranquility that comes with being in the present. You know? 
But none of this stuff ultimately brings us that tranquility, this constant craving, chasing, craving, chasing, craving. Because as Ajahn Chah says, it's uncertain, isn't it? It's uncertain. It's also impermanent. And I, I came out of a retreat years ago with the one phrase, when we cling, we suffer. When we cling to an idea, a concept, when we cling to the idea of permanence, of perfection, of living happily ever after, we suffer. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh said, the insight of impermanence helps us go beyond all concepts. We go beyond the concept of happiness. We go beyond the concept of anything. We just are absolutely where we are right here. Instead, we become comfortable with change, not in a spiritual bypass kind of way, like, oh, well, I can't do anything about it, but recognizing that everything changes and how do we, how do we do that, work with that groundlessness, that, that ground that's constantly shifting. It's like being in an earthquake all the time. It, it's, it can be very subtle. It can be jarring, like Maui was this whammo right in our face. But there's also subtle changes happening all the time. We eat, we're full, and then a few hours later, we're hungry again. That's impermanence. We breathe in, we breathe out. The impermanence of our breath. I mean, everything is impermanent when we really pay attention. So to be comfortable with that. There's the clarity and wisdom that's available when we embrace a need to embrace impermanence. And that everything, everyone experiences that. You know, billions and billions of dollars is not going to give Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos um, anything more than we have over this idea of impermanence. It's not going to save them from the human condition. You know, and change is impartial. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It's always happened. You know, and so, as I said, recognition of this, this reality doesn't mean we're happy all the time, but we can be at ease with what's happening because it's not personal. It's impartial. It happens to everyone. And um, from Jack Kornfield's book on the wise heart, he was talking about Ajahn Chah again, and he said, the trust expressed by Ajahn Chah comes when our consciousness rests in, in the internal present from where I sit, he said, nobody comes and no one goes. Resting in the middle way, there is no one who is strong or weak, young or old, no one who is born and no one who is die, who dies. This is the unconditioned. The heart is free. The ancient Zen masters call this, enlighten, call this enlightenment the trusting mind. The Zen texts explain how to do so. To live in trusting mind is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. The world is imperfect. Instead of, struggling to be perf to, instead of struggling to perfect the world, we rest in uncertainty. Then we can act with compassion and we give our best. Without attachment to the outcome, we bring fearlessness and trust to any circumstances. When we don't have to have a particular outcome, we can be fearless, doing the best we can, being grounded in these teachings and compassion and wisdom. 
you know, and, and that really hit me. I've, I've been working on this project for a couple of years, and it's due next month. It's a long-term project, so it's not. And, uh, and I've been, I had put it down for a while, and I tried to pick it up a couple of months ago, and I kept hitting a wall, and I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get anything done on it, couldn't get anything done on it. And then I did some sitting with it, and I realized I had this idea of perfection. And it had to be a certain way when, I, when we got, all got together for this seminar next month. And it had to look a certain way, and I had to, you know, I had to look good. There's all that, that ego, the I, me, my. I took birth as this person who had to present this thing in a particular way. And so I'd get the pat on the head and the gold star and add a girl. Um, and then I realized that. And now I've been able to shift my perspective and go, it's going to be whatever it is. I can't be perfect. It's, I'm just going to show up and go, here it is. Here it is. And there's so much freedom in that. Because I've lived a life of trying to be perfect. And I, have, and I suffered so much. We suffer so much from that. We suffer so much from believing what we're told about how it's supposed to be this way and it better measure up and the conditioning we receive and the stories we believe. And the invitation instead is to just let go. Let it be. It's uncertain. How do we manage with this uncertainty? How do we ground ourselves in a place of groundlessness? Embracing it. Right now it's like this. And so that is, I think, that is so powerful and so liberating if we can even walk towards this idea of letting go of perfection and ideas and needing it to be a particular way. And so for reflection, I just invite you to look, see for yourself how you work with ambiguity, how you work with change, how you work with groundlessness how you work with releasing your, your most favorite concepts of how things should be. And, and, and do you deny impermanence? How do you deny impermanence? Of course, as I said, we all recognize things are impermanent, but, but moving through the world, sometimes our, our reactivity doesn't let us n greet impermanence. We're, we're still working on this idea of, no, it can't be this way. So... Those are, those are my thoughts on, on impermanence and uncertainty, and I hope they have been of some benefit. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my friends, for your kind attention. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.